And uh, please uh, turn back to Psalm 45. We're beginning uh, this series, uh, four psalms, four songs that we're going to be looking at over these uh, weeks in September. And we're looking at Psalm 45 uh, tonight, which is page 569 of the Church Bibles. Page 569. And the last week was uh, Jobs at Home Week. Uh, for the Reese family, we had a, a holiday at home and it was a, a, a week of projects, a week of jobs. My main project of the week was to, five years later, finally clear out the basement. And uh, when it comes to things like that, uh, I am a ruthless clearer-outer, if there is such a word. I am a ruthless one. Uh, I like space. I come from a country with lots of space and so wherever I can create space, uh, I do it. And so as I uh, charged around uh, the basement, uh, if there was anything that didn't have an obvious or immediate use, uh, then it was out. Uh, either uh, to, uh, to go to a home where it would be loved or uh, uh, to its rightful destination, which is uh, in the skip. And uh, almost everything uh, passes uh, this, this way, almost everything gets culled uh, when Liz isn't watching. Uh, but then every now and then something from the past, some relic, some thing catches my heart again and takes me back and survives the cull yet again for some unknown reason. Now one such vestige from the past that has survived culls for now some 35 years is a box, a simple box. It's an old shoe box. It was a box uh, given to me by my parents that had some uh, random things that they handed on to me. I've now filled that box uh, with old cassette tapes. Uh, for the youth here, you might have to look up that word on Google, cassette tapes. <laughs> it's uh, what came before CDs and MP3s. And there they are, this box, uh, Grosby Shoes. I don't know whether they've got that brand here, but Grosby Shoes, and in it, a random collection of tapes. A bit of early U2, a sermon I preached at Bible College, which uh, probably should remain in the box. And then, uh, then there was the classic mixtape. I don't know whether you ever created a mixtape. They were the staples in the 80s and 90s, uh, carefully crafted mixtapes where you'd put songs carefully in an order to make some sort of statement, either to win a girl's heart or to impress a mate or whatever it was. And mixtapes were the soundtrack of a time and a place long ago. And hearing them again uh, stirs the heart and soul. And so there I was down in the basement, uh, found the old cassette player and put on the mixtape and uh, promptly put it back in the box. <laughs> Each song, though, as it was crafted, was weighted with significance. Each song important. And so tonight in the Psalms, as we dive into Psalm 45, we find ourselves uh, listening to a track on a mixtape. In Psalm 45, uh, the moment captured for us there, it's not hard to see, is it, uh, as it was read out before. This is a wedding song. In fact, it's uh, no ordinary wedding. This is the wedding of the King of Israel. This is a royal wedding. What an occasion. A royal wedding. Uh, worth special editions of newspapers, street parties, commemorative biscuit tins, bunting. This is big. And so the psalmist uh, there, I'm not sure what sort of vantage point he had, whether he's watching on BBC One or whether he was actually invited to the wedding. Uh, he's there and he sees his king, the king of his people and the king's bride. And he is stirred by the moment, the occasion to write a song, to capture this moment forever. He sees his king who is mighty and awesome, robed in splendour in this magnificent palace 
And then the bride comes in and she is glorious and the king can't take his eyes off her. As the music swells, she is led with joy and gladness to his home, now her home, and they are wed. Our psalmist is so stirred by this occasion, he pens this song, we're told, with his tongue. But I've got to be honest, uh, when it comes to this and perhaps all royal weddings, isn't this perhaps a bit all over the top? Uh, Poetic licence. I mean, after all, some of us are prone to do that with weddings, aren't we? Uh, Just to get a bit too excited about them. But here at last is a wedding worth being stirred by. For this, as I said before, is a wedding of a king, the king of Israel. And the psalmist, one of the Israelites, knew the the huge history, the huge momentum, the huge promise that came with this one. You see, Israel had always had a king. Ever since they were rescued from slavery in Egypt by God's mighty outstretched hand, he had pledged to be their king. He had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will rule you with grace and gentleness and provision every step of the way. But over time, uh, Israel in the land that God had given them, again a gift from him, they grew restless. They looked around at the other nations and they demanded a king just like them, a real king. And so God gave them what they wanted. But he warned them uh, that this king would not graciously provide as he had done, but instead he would take and take and take as all human rulers do. And in their first king, King Saul, this proved to be the case. But the wonderful story of Israel, and here is the theme that has so stirred the psalmist heart, the wonderful story is that out of grace, sheer grace, because nothing else could have brought it about, God promises to this unfaithful people who have rejected him as their king. He makes this remarkable promise to David, their second and perhaps greatest king. God would raise up a king from David's line, one of his sons, one of his descendants, who would be like God's son. God would be his father. A king whose kingdom would not last a day or a year or a century, but forever. What a promise. A king, a son of David who will reign forever and ever. It's a promise echoed all the way through this song in front of us, Psalm 45, you see it there in verse 2, God has blessed this king forever. Verse 6, his rule will be forever. Verse 17, his name, his greatness will last forever. And it's no surprise that our psalmist is stirred as one of David's descendants, perhaps Solomon here, arrives here at his wedding day. This is the wedding of the king through whom God has promised to establish a kingdom that will last forever. And you can imagine it, can't you, that this song perhaps was played as each successive king of Israel arrived and perhaps on his wedding day this song would be the soundtrack. Can you imagine it each time as this song was played, the stirrings of hope that would come back, perhaps this is the one. Perhaps this is our forever king. But each time the strains of the noble theme faded as each king fell far short of the promise of this forever king of a good and lasting rule. In fact, again and again, as the king's reign went on, another theme was heard altogether, a theme that jarred right across this gracious promise. The refrain that sounded by the kings of Israel was this. You can pick almost any of them and it's the same song. 
Take, for instance, Hosea, the last king of Israel in 2 Kings 17. Hosea did evil in the eyes of God. Or even later, by this stage, when the kingdom had split in two and uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, was destroyed utterly and all that was left was Judah. The last king of Judah, Zedekiah, 2 Kings 24, Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of God. The kingdom and the promise seemed to lie in ruins. They were cast off, uh, sent off to exile in some strange foreign land of Babylon under some cruel power. Packed away, shipped up in ruin and in exile. And so time passed. And with it the pomp and the splendour of the occasion captured for us in Psalm 45 went with it too. Now they had no king except this cruel power. Now they were a people who knew nothing of those days. Instead their days were filled with a pang of a failure, of loss, of grief over their sin that had led them into exile. Days spent begging the question, has God forsaken us and his promise? Now this for God's people was life in the basement. But down there in the basement, the exile finds an old box, a collection of tapes, if you will, and flicking through them he finds a mixtape. He lifts it out of the box and he removes the the tattered liner notes from the old cracked plastic case and scrawled across in sort of felt-tip pen is a message from the original compiler which says this, Here are songs to stir your heart to love again, even on the dark days. And so he looks down the track list and there is song 45, a wedding song. He puts it in the old cassette player and the tune begins to fill the basement around him and he finds his heart stirred by this old tune. As he listens, he hears the promise that he, even he, miles from home, knows that promise still stands. You see, Psalm 45 45 is a song that wasn't just penned for the red-letter days of the Kingdom of Israel when everything was great. This psalm was also a song that the people of God had kept close like some time capsule so that even here in the dark days of the exile, if they listened carefully, this song echoed again and again of their great and first love, their God. They would hear again his incredible promise, his incredible hope for their future. But I want to say to you tonight, this is not just a song for the psalmist or the one in exile. This is a song for us. And this song is designed to do the same thing to you, to stir your heart. However much the psalmist was stirred, however much the one in the dark days of exile was stirred, I am sure he was. How much more should we find our hearts stirred by this noble theme? Now, this is a series all about calling you and me to wholehearted living. And here is a song purpose-built to do just that, to stir your heart and soul and mind to live for your God, your first and great love. And really what I want to do tonight is just give you two simple reasons from this song why you should be stirred like that. And both of them are concerned the two key players in this wedding song, the groom and the bride. So let this song stir your heart. First, the most excellent groom. He is a groom who should stir your heart And I want to say tonight, as I said before, that not only the psalmist, not only the the one in exile, you of all people should be stirred by this. 
Because it's only those who know the gospel of King Jesus, only those who know the wonderful news of Jesus see the full heart-stirring reality of this occasion. You see, if you look down into this psalm, in Psalm uh, verses 6 and 7, those two verses are picked up centuries later, centuries later, word for word, in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, as he's writing to the Hebrews, as he's speaking of Jesus, our Jesus, he makes explicit that this king, all those years ago, is our king. This is the wedding celebration of none other than King Jesus. And what I want to do for you now is to see in this song penned so long ago the truth about your king. Because here's my hunch, if you're anything like me, here's my hunch. Perhaps as you head out onto a a new term, a, a new season or a new church family, perhaps he is no longer that which stirs your heart. Or perhaps not as he once did. Well, to you and to me as well, I say, have you forgotten who he is? Have you lost sight of him in the midst of all that's before you? Your king, let's see him afresh. Let me tell you four things about your king. Here's the first one. You see it there in verse 2. Your king is beautiful. The psalmist looks in on this scene and uh, everything in this wedding scene is exactly opposite to how we normally view weddings. It's usually the bride and the bride's beauty that we're interested in and look for. You know, as long as the groom turns up on time and stands at the front quietly, we're happy. It's the bride we're interested in. But this wedding is different. All eyes are on the king. And he's beautiful. He really is. But look down as the verses go on. We're told he is the most excellent, more literally the most beautiful of all men. As the verses go on, what's strikingly beautiful about this man, this king, is it's not his looks. They're not mentioned. No, something else is beautiful. It's his lips. It's what's coming from his lips that is so achingly beautiful. They are full of grace. And more literally, the more literal translations say his lips have been poured full of grace. That's all that's in them. That's all that comes out. Grace. Here is a king who is beautiful to his royal subjects because of what comes from the word of his lips. Grace, overflowing grace upon grace. The blessing that God has given this man, this king, is to speak grace. And not just on the good days, not just for a moment, but forever. That's his job. And remember Hebrews 1 says he's talking about your king, Jesus Jesus is the most beautiful man ever to walk this earth. It wasn't Zoolander, it was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, your king. And it wasn't his looks either, either. as much as the sort of the Jesus movies try to make him look like some sort of Fabio character. He had no beauty, we're told, in Isaiah or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When he was beaten and bloodied and flogged within an inch of his life and then nailed to our cross, he had no beauty. But yes, he did. His lips, even then, even then on the cross, were full of grace as he cried, Father, forgive them. Here at last is a king who fulfills the full weight of God's promise. Here at last is the most beautiful man whose lips pour forth grace, who speaks a better word than any of us. 
who stands in the synagogue in Luke 4 and said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, he has blessed me to preach good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace. And what captivated those who heard him that day was not his looks, was not uh, what he was wearing, none of those things. It was uh, Luke 4 verse 22, they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Your king is beautiful. He really is. And let me say at this point, for the guys here who are thinking at this point, this is the bit where I tune off. He's talking about Jesus being beautiful. That's for the girls. And maybe he'll say something for me in a moment. Uh, Let me say two things to you. Firstly, get over that. And second, there's this. Is there anything more beautiful than this? The man, this king, your God, speaks this word to you. There is no condemnation for you in me. No condemnation. No matter what you've done on your worst day, the things you regret, the things you think will come back to haunt you, there is no condemnation. How beautiful is that? Here is a word that is so strong that it can teach you to say no to ungodliness. No more lame plans that don't work. Here is a word that can actually help. Here is a word strong enough, Acts 20 says, that can carry you all the way to salvation. And here is a word so captivating that it can save even your mates. There is nothing more beautiful than the word of your king. The word he speaks to you and to your world. If you hear his word clearly, it is enough to catch the most prepared heart off guard and blow it apart. Your king is beautiful. And if you have lost that sense, perhaps it is that you have stopped listening to the word he speaks to you. Perhaps the, sort of the well of grace that you draw from hasn't been refreshed in some time. Well, let him speak to you. You want to live for him this year, really live for him, then commit yourself to the word that comes from his lips. Here's the second thing about your king. He is victorious. You see it in verses 3 to 5. Not only is the psalmist stirred by the sight of the king's beauty, but also his victory. He sees his king ready for his wedding day and here's what he says, verse 3. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendour and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. His king is a warrior, a battler, a fighter of great battles. Not the sort of king who sort of stands afar and issues the troops into the fray. No, he leads the charge. And the psalmist loves it. Here he is, he's cheering on his king. He wants his king to win more and more and more. That's an image picked up for us in Revelation 19 about our king where King Jesus is pictured as riding in front of the angels, the angel armies of heaven, riding for justice and righteousness and truth and he wins Let me ask you, do you realise how victorious your king is? All his enemies are defeated at his feet. Sin, Satan, even death. He has made a public spectacle of them on the cross. He wins. And even now he is spreading the news of that victory throughout this world. He is, as Matthew 12 puts it, riding out in victory as the hope of the nations. What a thought. And tell me, when you think of his victory, a victory that you and I are in on, does it stir your heart? Are you like the psalmist, standing there cheering him on, hoping he'll win more? 
I remember growing up uh, watching uh, many a, a rugby a game with the, uh, the Australian Wallabies playing. There was one particular commentator who was an absolute hopeless commentator. Hopeless, always saying the, the wrong thing at the wrong time. His name was Chris Handy. And uh, uh, they kept trying to sort of take him off, but the, the audience loved him. Because uh, every now and then, uh, when it came to Australia getting close to scoring a try, he couldn't help himself. He'd just sort of stand up and start cheering and saying, Go, you good thing! And that was his catchphrase. And everyone loved it. And so when they took him off for a few weeks, uh, there was a sort of a public petition to get Chris Handy back to say this line. I better be back for the next World Cup. Let me ask you, do you feel that way about your Jesus? Go, you good thing. Is your heart stirred? by what he has done on the cross, by the difference it's made to you, by the difference it can make in this world? Is your heart stirred to proclaim to a fractured world, here is a king who actually fights for truth and humility and righteousness and he wins. Put your hope in him. You see how important our mission partners are. You see how important the meeting that was happening just this afternoon in Global Sheffield there, those who are reaching out to the nations in our city. Is your heart stirred to see him take more and more territory in this city for his name? We want King Jesus to win in the Gleadless Valley because here is a battle that matters. There, as here in Fullwood, are thousands of people who live in the shadow of death, who live without God and without hope in this world. That is a battle worth winning. In a place like that and a place like this, we call upon our King, verse 4, in your majesty ride forth victoriously. Two more things briefly about your king. third one is this, uh, your king rules. You see it there in verses 5 to 7. Have a look, verse 5. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. Your king rules. And we're going to see a lot more of that next week and we'll leave it till then. But let me say this. Consider for a moment the encouragement, the stirring of faith, that reality that the king rules would have been to the people in exile. He rules. His throne will last forever. His kingdom will be just and righteous and joyful. What a hope. How our world needs that hope. One last thing about your king, verse 8. Your king is awesome. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From the palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. You see, his beauty, his victory, his rule, all of these things are meant to leave us with a sense of, wow. Here we see him in verse 8 dressed as he really is. Usually at a wedding uh, people get dressed up beyond who they really are but here is who he is. Adorned uh, in majesty, robed in majesty, a palace adorned in splendour, surrounded by music for him. The sort of music that makes you glad for the hearing and at least it does him. His presence prompts that music, prompts praise. We, uh, early in the summer, as a family, we went to uh, Portugal, which was just an uh, amazing holiday, and my parents were with us, so they came across uh, from Australia, and we hitched a ride uh, with them for the two weeks, and one of the benefits of having my parents there, apart from seeing them, of course, which was great, uh, was uh, being able to go out at night with Liz, 
And uh, so on one of our trips we went to a place called Sagres, which has a, a sort of a point, a lighthouse, which is the southwesternmost point in all of Europe. And we got there about sunset time and discovered that this was obviously a place where people made a pilgrimage at, at sunset because it was so spectacular. They say that as the sun sets uh, there over Sagres, it sizzles into the water. You can hear it. And so there we were with uh, these huge crowds, lots of chatter, and then uh, as the sun gets to the point where it's setting, silence, utter silence. Amazing. And then spontaneous applause. As I was walking back to the car, the thing that came into my heart was how right that was. We are wired up to praise things that are bigger and beyond us. We, we can't help it. There they were. They, they didn't know that anyone else was going to do it, but everyone suddenly burst into applause. We are made to praise and here is your object of praise. Here's the reason God has wired you up to feel that way when you see something like that. Your king is beautiful and victorious and reigning and he is the very reason you're designed to praise But my hunch is this, all too easily when it comes to our Jesus, when we've been a Christian for a while, we lose the sense of awe before him. At best, he's our buddy. Our faith is uh, casual and ordinary. We even tell other people that Christianity is all very normal. But it's not, is it? He's awesome. You see the pictures of the heavenly courts in the scriptures. There's nothing casual about it. There's no one standing there with their service sheet wondering what's for tea later. No, when they sing, uh, it's with an anthem that sounds like thunder. Sound a bit like that tonight. They sing holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And every time they sing it, every time they grasp what they've just sing, they say amen and then they fall down and worship him. Because he's awesome. And my prayer for us this year is that we grasp again just how awesome he really is. So that we're not of those who would sing what we have sung tonight, who would hear what we have heard tonight and prayed tonight and amen all of it, hardly amen all of it, and walk out these doors and absolutely not live it. May God save us from that. May he reveal in his word to us this year, the full majesty of his glory that we might live for him. Now, just before we finish, let me say a couple of brief things about the bride. We have focused tonight very deliberately on the groom. Uh, But let me say something about the bride, the enthralling bride as she is in this passage. And again, it is the gospel of King Jesus, the gospel we have come to know and believe that shows us the full reality of who this bride is. Here is why this song should stir your heart so much tonight. Not only because of who the king is. You, me, us together, we're the bride. We're the bride. This is a song written for your wedding day. Imagine that. Imagine having a song that was composed for your wedding day. I I never had such delusions of grandeur that someone would do that for me. But here is your song. Our song. Again and again in the scriptures, the people of God, the community of Christ, us, the church, we're called the bride. His bride. Now Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, speaking of why he cares so much for the church there, says, you have been promised to one husband, to Christ who you will be led before, where the bride. 
And let me say tonight as we commission those uh, joining the church at Holy Cross, Gleadless Valley, that is why this is so very spectacular. She's beautiful. You know that moment in a wedding where the bride comes round the corner and she's walking down the aisle. I, I get the absolute best view. I get to stand down here, say, please stand for the arrival of the bride and she comes round that corner. I tell them it's the point of no return. She comes round that corner and everyone falls silent. And so they should. She is beautiful. In Gleadless Valley, see her go. She is glorious. But what makes her glorious, what makes her beautiful, what makes Christchurch forward beautiful, what is emphasised all the way through this song is not her beauty in her own right, she is beautiful, yes, but it's her relationship to the king. She is, verse 9, at his right hand. Verse 11, he delights in her. Verse 14, she is led to him with joy and gladness. Imagine that. Verse 15, she enters his palace to live with him. She is beautiful but her glory is in her relationship to the king. The relationship we now have by faith with our king, Jesus. A relationship that will be consummated on that day, that great day when the groom comes calling for his bride, the wedding day. Now what a day. Now let me say, and just as we come towards a close, Church of Christ, bride of Christ, live like you're engaged. Live like it's just a few days before that day, the day that you've been longing for. You know the days before a wedding, if you've been involved in one in any way whatsoever, they're always full of activity, aren't they? Always busy. And it's usually the bride who has to do all the work and the groom sort of just sits off on the side, but not this time. The groom is the one who's got all the plans sorted out. But wonderfully, he lets us in on the plans for the day. You see in these last days uh, what activity is happening, what issues from the relationship between the groom and the bride. You see it there in our last couple of verses, verse 16 and 17. What happens in this relationship between groom and bride? What issues from it? Well, what do you think? Children. Verse 16 and 17 says, children is what comes from the relationship. Children from the nations, royal children, who will enter in and share in the king's reign and so by this the king's name will be known from generation to generation, from people to people. Well, it's time to stop. Here we are at the start of a series of my soul, my heart, my all. Four songs to stir you to wholehearted living for your king. And tonight we've started with this. He is your love. Your king is full of words of grace. He is full of victory and he is on his throne and he is worthy of praise. See him for all he is and see who you are in relationship to him. You're his bride. And if we see that clearly, here's what we'll do. Or heed the word of the Spirit, uh, the word the Spirit says to the bride in verse 10. Do you see it there? Listen, daughter. Consider and give ear to this. It is time to forget your people and your father's house. Leave behind other loves, other loyalties that might demand your best love, your faithfulness, things that might occupy your thoughts or energies or times or emotions more than him. Leave them behind. 
Things that might be more beautiful to you this year than Jesus. Consider, is there anything like that for you? More beautiful than Jesus. Friends, sex, stuff. Or more assuring to you than Jesus. Your home, your job, your family. Or more wonderful than Jesus. What's your first love going to be this year? The thing that as you get closer to it, uh, it fills you with joy and gladness. Here is your first love, your king. So forget other loves. Hold loosely to that which might capture your heart instead of him. Give him your all this year and see if he is not everything he promised to be. And as you turn your heart and soul and all to him, as you lift your eyes to the king, your groom, know this, verse 10. As he looks upon you, his bride, he is stoked enthralled by your beauty. What a thought. Honour him, for he is your Lord. Let's pray.